So hear the word of God, Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. The grass indeed withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God for that truth. I have to keep the water further away now because my hands have tended to knock it over a few times. We don't want the electronics to be baptized any more than they already are. How many of you remember, this might be a a song that's a little old for some of our uh, millennial, no, not even the millennial crowd, more, I think you're Gen Zetters or something like that now, or uh, along that line. Uh, Refiner's Fire. How many of you remember that hymn? Yeah, a number of us do. You know, there, there's a phrase in it. This is the problem with some hymns in that. They don't get it right. They contradict scripture. And, and the phrase in it goes like this. I choose to be what? Holy. Right. I choose to be holy. No, we don't. In fact, we're told in Ephesians 1 that it is the Father in love, who has chosen us to be holy and without blame before him. We do not willingly choose those things. 
In fact, that's the whole problem. Our sin nature does not choose those things that God desires for us. And were it not for that work of his grace in us, we would uh, not pursue holiness as we are called to. We are in these brief, uh, this brief series exploring what I think is the most glorious attribute of God, and that is his holiness. It is the one attribute that is three times mentioned, and that is a way of emphasizing a truth that needs to be laid hold of. It is, I believe as well, the greatest of thoughts that we can have to meditate upon God. He is holy, holy, holy. I want you to think of this as we read this text and as we go through this text in the next couple sermons as well again. Think about this as as God was creating the whole of the universe, as he was about unfolding the work of his hands and creating the heavens, that he took this moment in time to create these seraphim, these fiery angelic beings whose sole purpose was to be around the throne of God crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world or the whole earth is full of his glory. That's their sole purpose. And that was part of his creative work. In Revelation, we read the same scene unfolded for us. And it says there, they do not rest day or night. They're constantly at this. Declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, the one who was and is and is to come. And the amazing thing about that is the angels are doing this not to build up God's ego, not to make God feel good about himself. He doesn't need that. He knows he is holy. Why does he have these angels around his throne uh, crying out in such glorious majesty? In Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 to 11 tells us why. Whenever these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sat on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and worshipped him, who lives forever and ever. Whether we realize it or not, heaven and, and these majestic holy angels crying out, holy, 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 are indeed purposed to declare and to call all of creation expressly to that purpose of worship. And, and particularly in, in Revelation 4, the focus is on the church. They're doing this to call us as the church to come and to magnify and glorify and worship the holy God who is enthroned in the highest. There would be, in some way, heaven moving and stirring and compelling us as God's people to worship him. We don't see that, do we? 
But that's part of the, the being raised up spiritually into those heavenly places and being seated with Christ Jesus. That which is what happens spiritually as we assemble together to worship him. It's that which is happening. The question is, do you? Do you magnify, magnify, glorify, worship the holy God enthroned in the highest? That is, as we like to say in our Presbyterianism, our chief end, to glorify God. And then, in glorifying Him, we enjoy God. We heard last week about the holiness of God. The holiness of God is a threefold majesty, at least these three things. He is holy. Meaning that God alone is God, completely and exclusively. There is no other God. Don't be deceived. When the nations like to say of all religion, we all worship the same God, we call Him by a different name. Don't believe. That is a lie. There is only one living and true God. He is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's one of the reasons I emphasize often within our midst why we make that confession on the Lord's Day in our evening service so that we will remember there is only one God. He is holy. And as He is holy, secondly, He is a God of absolute truth and righteousness. Absolute truth and righteousness. It exists. Do not believe the world when they say that all truth is relative. That is a lie. Moral truth, truth itself, there is an absoluteness to it. And it comes from God. He is absolute truth and righteousness. He is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. He is holy. And He is holy in that He also is God who is judge of all the earth. That every single person will come and stand before God and He will hold them accountable for everything that they have done in the flesh, of the mind, of the mouth, and of the deeds of their hands. Whether they're good or bad, God will make the glory of His holiness To shine upon them. To judge them. That's the holiness of God. And and Isaiah here in our text is given this vision of God as he is in the temple. And he looks up and he sees the Lord sitting on the throne. And he hears the angels crying out about the glory, the majesty of God in all of his holiness. And what is Isaiah's response as he is drawn into this magnificent glory. He soon learns the, the terrifying reality of Psalm 24. Who indeed may stand in this holy place? You know, uh, you've heard it before, but it, it's, it's how we have a view of God that isn't always accurate. How we have a view of even angels that isn't always accurate. We create these beautiful, childlike, innocent little 
uh, figurines and angels, and we hang them sometimes on our Christmas trees uh, in that season, and we have them pictured in our minds, and we think, oh, they're just glorious. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see an angel? Are you kidding? <laughs> Any time that happened in the Bible, people thought they were going to die because they saw the glory of God, the holiness of God. And we see Isaiah responding in the same measure. And that's because, first of all, the holiness of God is an enemy to sin. The holiness of God is an enemy to sin. I dare to say we often don't think of sin having enemies. We often, and rightly so, portray sin as the enemy. Because as sin has come into us, through Adam and through that first sin. Sin has transformed us into enemies of God. Romans 5, God even says, while you were yet enemies of me. Sin is what has transformed us. Sin is the sting of death in 1 Corinthians 15. Sin is seen and and taught to us as that poison that that comes upon us that robs us of life and that makes death itself so desperately bitter for people don't ever be fooled by people who say they're not afraid to die death is a bitter sting and the sting of death is sin it's the poison and, and the thing about sin as an enemy in our own lives and in our own relationship with God is that sin makes every one of us incapable and unwilling to love and seek and believe God. Now, I know that you will meet people who will say, I believe there is a God. But my friends, that's very different from saying, I believe God. <laughs> Because if you believed God, you would be on your knees repenting and pleading, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And and that kind of response is a response to the holiness of God. It is the holiness of God intruding into your soul to confront sin. And until the holiness of God comes upon you, you will never understand the sinfulness of sin. We need this enemy of sin, the holiness of God. I know it's a strange way maybe to look at holiness, but that's a reality. It confronts our sinfulness. And it's the only thing that can confront our sinfulness and make us fear and tremble. Without that holiness of God, we wouldn't. And isn't it truly Interesting that this prophet of God who hasn't committed any sin here at this moment. He's just being opened up to the glory and the holiness of God. And what is his response? Woe is me. Woe is me. Contrast that to chapter 5 if you want to turn back just a page. And look at the six woes that are there, which 
Some of us are familiar with at least one of them, but there's a few in there. You get it, verse 8. The woes are pronounced, the impending judgment on the excesses that people engage in. In verse 8, those who profiteer at the expense of the poor and indulge in their greed. Woe to them. And you get down to verse 11 and the second woe uh, being pronounced to, on those who get, uh, involve themselves in that, that uh, indulgence of revelry and degenerate living. Woe to them. And you go down to verse 18 and the third woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity. Those who would indulge in mocking God and purposely scorning his ways. Woe to them. And, and of course the very uh, familiar one that we often quote and we use it against our nation. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who would increase uh, uh, moral corruption in their own lives, but also in the lives of, uh, of others uh, by changing and challenging what is good and morally upright. Woe to them. And verse 21, woe to those who indulge in self-righteous pride and arrogance and and they're, they're, they're again, they're wise in their own eyes and they will not hear anything that confronts and challenges their sinful heart. Woe to them. And the last one in verse 6, those who would pervert justice as they indulge themselves at another's expense. You know, when we read scripture and when you read chapter 5, it's easy for us as a church, as Christians, to look and say, that's society, that's out there. Woe to them. God, thank you that your glory and your holiness pronounces such a judgment on them. We cheer that, don't we? That's because, as I was trying to get to the children on this, it's easy for us to see another's sinfulness, and it's easy for us to call them out on it. And, and it's easy for us to say, look at how evil, how wicked, how sinful that is, but you get here to chapter 6, and, and here's the seventh woe, and it's pronounced on himself. Isaiah's own depravity is being confronted by the holiness of God. We miss that at times, don't we? He's seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and he immediately comprehends his sinfulness. And this is no small thing. Think about it in Luke 18 and that very familiar parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who both go to the temple to pray. And you can just envision seeing this happening as they're entering into the temple complex to pray and to seek God. And, and even within that parable, most of you know it, as the Pharisee begins to say, thank you God that I'm not like other men and that I don't this and this and this and I do this and this and this and 
God, aren't you pleased with me? And it's easy for us to look and to say, what a self-righteous man. And then we look over at the tax collector who's standing there and, and he wouldn't even lift his eyes to look when he was praying. He was so ashamed and he simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't believe we are actually overwhelmed by what was happening because that tax collector went into the temple and experienced exactly what Isaiah experienced. Woe is me! Woe is me! I'm not a sinner because I'm a tax collector. I'm a sinner. I am a man who has a sinful heart. And it doesn't matter how much good I think I do. I am constantly short of the glory of God. And here is a prophet being confronted with the holiness of God. And he can't help but look at himself and to say, what a depraved creature I am. And you might think, well, that kind of self-loathing isn't healthy. My friends, we're all going to be confronted with that self-loathing when we stand before God. I am undone. His mortality was exposed. I am ruined. I'm cut off. I am silent like the dead. What can I say as I stand in God's presence except for God I deserve to die? He's not alone in this. In Luke 5, remember when Peter really and truly saw Jesus for who he was. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, let me use your boat. And, and as he used his boat to speak to the crowd, you know, Peter and his partners and his brother Andrew, they were laboring all night fishing and they didn't catch anything and they came in and they were getting ready to clean their nets. And at the end of Jesus' teaching, he says to Peter, now take the boat out. Let's go fishing. Luke 5. And he says, throw over the net. And Peter obeys. He throws over the net and catches a net full of fish and his other partners have to come out with their boats to haul everything in. But isn't it something at that moment, Peter looks to Jesus and what does he see? He sees the holiness of the Son of God standing in his presence and what does he say? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. I can't be in your presence you are holy, holy, holy. And again, even in Peter's instance, the holiness of God wasn't necessarily confronting a sin that had been committed. It was meeting a man of who he was in his sinful nature before a holy God. And the reality of being a sinful being struck his heart as something again as people of God. Again, this Peter wasn't a tax collector. Peter wasn't a Pharisee. Peter wasn't one of the depraved of society. He was a fisherman. He realized something Robert Murray McChain had said and it still stands true. He realized that in my heart lies the seeds of every known sin. 
That's why I read from 1 Peter, you know, murderers, thieves, evildoers, and busybodies. <laughs> what a strange grouping of sins. But it's saying, don't think because you haven't murdered or stolen or done some evil deed that you're better than someone who has. Because before God, you're not. Even though Isaiah was a prophet of the Lord, Isaiah was confronted by the holiness of God for him to realize that at his core he was nothing more than a sinner. And he needed this because God was going to use him to go out and to preach the gospel to sinners. He had to stop and and look to himself. And I challenge you this morning each one of you, has the holiness of God, has that revealed this truth in your heart? You're here to worship God. Do you realize what needed to happen to enable you to stand in that holy presence of God and worship Him? We're not here by our own glory and goodness. We're in Christ Holy One. And, and secondly, as we look at this, we see something else that the holiness of God reveals. It reveals the misery of sin. It's one of the catechism questions we have in the back of our hymn book. It's shorter catechism number 19. And it talks about the misery of sin. That comes in our lives. And, and it lists at least these five things. The, the misery of sin. Means that we have lost communion with God. We're under his wrath and curse. We're made liable to all the miseries in this life. Do you wonder why you suffer from ill health? Because we're sinners. It's the reality of life under the curse. And we're liable to death itself and the pains of hell forever. Isaiah sees this misery when he says, I am a man. A man of unclean lips. And and this isn't Isaiah having a conversion experience. This is Isaiah reeling from an encounter with the God whom he was serving as a prophet. God chose this time to make him aware of his own wretchedness and need. And he needed that so that he could go and patiently and properly be a prophet to the rest of Israel and Judah. To serve God in holiness begins by understanding who we are. In our base essence as people, we are nothing more, and thank God, nothing less than a sinner saved by grace. That's what we are. We're sinners saved by grace. We have not deserved any measure of God's goodness. We, we don't deserve any goodness more than uh, uh, an unbeliever because of who God is that we receive kindness and goodness and our salvation again is completely and totally dependent upon Jesus 
the one who was sinless and the one who is the Holy One and the one who as the Son of God came and bore the penalty and curse that we deserve. We're saved by grace. Thank God that grace is at work because of who we are. I'm a man, a man of unclean lips. I'm a man whose, whose words, I'm called to be a prophet. Isaiah is saying, I'm a prophet of God. I'm called to speak God's word. How can I do that when, when my mouth is a reflection of my heart? Remember Jesus said that in Matthew 15? You ever wonder why you have those wretched thoughts of some people? You ever wonder why sometimes you thought, oh, I wish so-and-so were dead? So angry? Ever wonder why your mouth says such unkind things to people you love? Where does that come from? The heart. <laughs> the mouth speaks the overflow of the heart. And as he Here's the seraphim worshiping God. Isaiah realizes just how unfit he was to do the work of the Lord. Who am I? Who am I? And it's this dilemma. This is, this is the real misery of sin. This dilemma. How can I, a sinner, have a relationship with a holy God? How can I be in his presence? How can I, as a Christian, be holy as God calls me to be? Because he is holy. That's the dilemma. And the good news is that, as it was for Isaiah here, a very humbling moment of growth in the understanding of the holiness of God. That answer, that question, how can I be holy as God calls me to be holy because He is holy? It's answered by Christ. <laughs> and it's the only place where it can be answered. And again, thank God Jesus answers that question with His sacrifice. You ever struggle to have a burden for the lost? Do you ever struggle to have sympathy and compassion for those who are dead in their sins? Do you ever get frustrated when you see people making decisions that affect you and you know they're wrong decisions? How is it that you're going to be long-sufferingly patient in your life with people whom you love, with your children who commit the same wrong not once, not twice, but we're going on 12 times here. Haven't I already told you 10 times not to do this? As a parent, that frustration grows and grows. And you sit there, why don't they get it? My friends, that's the simple heart. And it's not just that the holiness of God is, is revealing the misery of sin. That, that's the misery of sin, what we're dealing with is that for us who comprehend the holiness of God, is that we are growing in a humbling way to appreciate the human struggle. You need this revelation. You need it when you are 
ministering in your families, in your household. You need it when you go to your workplaces and you get frustrated and you think, I just can't work in this place anymore. It's so secular. Well, you know, that, that's the world. I hate our government leaders. Look at the immorality that they're unfolding. You know, we need, we need this revelation of God's holiness to impact us for the patience and the long-suffering that we need to be turned into, not that, that bitter complaining that I just expressed, but to be turned into a burden for those who are lost and dead in their sins. That's what it is. Paul had to learn to grow in this knowledge of his own sinfulness before God and listen to how it impacted him and how it grew in his heart and how it didn't make him cynical, but how it propelled him to be even a greater witness of the gospel of Christ to those who were lost. In his early uh, moments in uh, in and around 55 AD as he was ministering and serving in, in Asia and, and setting up churches everywhere. 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. Why? Because I persecuted the church. You, you didn't see Peter, James, and John, and etc., etc. Those servants of the church, they weren't out there murdering and, and putting people in prison for their faith. I did that. And he looked at himself and he said, of all the, I'm the least of the apostles. And yet, Paul's letters are the greatest of the apostles. <laughs> A little further on, in around 62 AD, in around there, in Ephesians 3, he grew in this understanding of his own sinfulness as the holiness of God bore upon him. And he would look at himself and he would say, I'm the least of all sins. But everyone's a better Christian than me. <laughs> I recognize that. And then towards the end of his life, in 1 Timothy 1, he looked at the world and he just looked at himself and he said, what? You know those words. I'm the chief of sinners. Recognizing that, I see in my life that God has displayed the wonder of his mercy. It's like saying, if God can forgive me all my sins, he can forgive anyone. That was Paul's that's the holiness of God. He didn't despair. He didn't give up. He didn't hide his sin. No, what happened was holiness humbled him where he was growing less and less satisfied with who he was in his earthly state and more and more earnest for that heavenly glory when he would be without sin. It made him earnest for those who were lost and dead. Some of you know one of my favorite hymns, Again, it's Robert Murray McChain. <laughs> Number 545 in our hymn book, When This Passing World Is Done. But that middle stanza. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty not my own, when I see thee as thou art, and love thee with unsinning heart. <laughs> we think we love God now. Our love for God in this earthly life, dear Christian, has sin attached to it. 
Our love for God is very imperfect, incomplete. It doesn't take much, admit it, for all of us. It doesn't take much for us to skip out on devotions and worship of God. It's so easy. And we blame it on the busyness of life rather than looking and saying, what a wretched man I am. I couldn't spend ten minutes with God in worship and devotion of Him. God, I want to love you with an unsinning heart. That's the holiness of God at work in us. And it won't be until then that we fully know how much we owe to Christ. Do you realize that? And, and here's the thing. As we come to the last point here in, in these verses. The holiness of God reveals his love for our atonement. When we see that, that the holiness of God is what motivated Christ to come and to deal with our sinfulness. Think about it, if you will, in this light. That these seraphs who had been created by God to be always at it, night and day, Surrounding his throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That for that one moment when this sinner realizes that he is undone and needs to have atonement, the king commands the seraph to stop glorifying him and says, go and speak my gospel to him. Isn't that wondrous? I'm, I'm not saying, you know, in all of that, that, that that's what happened, but that, that's what we're being shown here. God is saying, Seraph, stop, take the coal, go and purge his sins, bring him to the gospel. That he can know what I and my holiness have done to take this wretched sinner and make them a holy person. You see the work of God, isn't it wondrous? And what you see here as a seraph grabs that coal with the tongs and goes over and touches his mouth and he speaks to him. This has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. That's a picture of the cross. That's the picture of the Holy One of heaven coming down and saying, I will go and die the death that my people need so that they and live eternally. That's the holiness of God. Desiring, wanting, accomplishing our salvation. And it's full atonement. Again, think of that wonderful hymn, uh, Hallelujah, what a Savior. And you get to that that one uh, verse there where it says, full atonement, can it be? Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. The propitiation of our sins. A great Bible word you should know. But it means that God's wrath against you has been quenched, taken away. Satisfaction. The penalty that all your sins needed has been paid 
The guilt has been removed. Forgiveness. I can pardon you because justice has been served by my son. There is no reason for me to say that your sins are still a debt to me. I will pardon every one of them. Cleanse it. I'm not just going to forgive you. I'm going to wash you clean. I'm going to take away every stain that is upon you. So that when I see you, I'm not looking at a wretched sinner. I see a saint, a holy one. Isn't that marvelous? Reconciliation. You were an enemy. I want you to be a friend. Friend of sinners. My friends, only the holiness of Christ could effect so mighty an atonement. It is what covers us all who stand before him. Isn't it marvelous? And I ask you this. That not only has the holiness of God been revealed to you and you see the misery of your sins, but has the holiness of God covered you? Holiness of Christ, has it come upon you? Are you dressed in that beauty of holiness that only God can provide for you? This is what you need. And as you think on the holiness of God, my friends, think on this. This is what God has done For me, a sinner, to transform me. Just as my sin transformed me before God into an enemy of God, the holiness of God transforms us into saints. Are you a saint? Look to Christ. Know that gospel. Believe in Him. My friends, you will experience the beauty of God's holiness an amazing grace. Turn to him and live. Let's pray.